0: The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Lawrence Rosen, is chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on integrative medicine, the founder of the Whole Child Center in New Jersey and is a nationally recognized expert in pediatric integrative medicine. He's on Health Watch today to talk about ways to use natural equivalents to conventional remedies for common childhood ailments, as outlined in his new book, Treatment Alternatives for Children. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Lawrence Rosen.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So you wrote Treatment Alternatives for Children with Jeff Cohen, a patient. Tell us about the collaboration between the two of you and how this book came to be.
1: I'm glad you started with that it's a great story and I think um speaks to the collaboration and the relationship between patients and practitioners. Um Jeff is a dad in my practice. I see kids from birth through their young 20s or so and uh, he has two young kids with his wife Carol. They're very holistic holistically oriented parents and he's been working with me since his first child was born and he said I really like the work you do. I think you should write a book. And I said that's great Jeff, thank you. I have no time. I'm really busy seeing patients, you know. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm a writer. And I I knew he had written some um, business and self-help related books. I'll help you do it. And so it was a really true partnership. We came up with the structure and the format together. And um, he really helped me along the way, put it together and structure it. The the medical pieces were mine, the anecdotal stories. and, And the other great thing he did was gather stories from other families and parents to sprinkle throughout the book. And um, it's a great partnership, and it really speaks to, you know, the relationship that we have with many of our families here.
0: Well, Doctor Rosen, as the chair of of the integrative medicine section of the Academy of Pediatrics, tell our listeners what integrative medicine is and and why you think it's particularly relevant for pediatrics.
1: I think it's a term. So integrative medicine, uh, to me really represents a seamless integration of complementary and alternative therapies things which are historically not conventional with those more conventional treatments in in what we call western or american medicine and so it may be it may look something like you know in my office we do primary care for babies and we talk about nutrition and development and Um, you know, talk about different therapies and treatments that are more traditional, conventional, and we also do yoga, and we have acupuncture, and talk about homeopathy, and so child who um, might come in with an ear infection, we're not necessarily looking at antibiotics, although we're, you know, we don't come out and say we are opposed to medications per se, but we start, we try to look at natural alternatives and and mix them, and in, in more and more in academic settings. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is a a very conventional organization of uh, thousands and thousands of pediatricians across the world. Um, And they fortunately have been open-minded enough to have a small group of us, there are about 200 pediatricians who identify themselves as integrative. Uh, We have our own section and we try to look at research and evidence-based therapies, and partner with other practitioner groups, uh, naturopaths, homeopaths, acupuncture groups, to, to further research and clinical work in those areas.
0: Well, it seems like a, a, it's a timely moment to have integrative medicine and pediatrics in particular, especially with a lot of studies coming out showing some of the limitations of, say, antibiotics with ear infections or with bronchitis or sinusitis. Mm-hmm. Um, we always are. We always have this assumption in medicine that more treatment is going to be better outcomes, but that isn't always the case.
1: Right, and it's been shown, as you said, when you look at health outcomes, uh, both in adults and in kids particularly, we're seeing a rise in chronic illnesses and less uh, effectiveness of our acute care treatments as time has go- gone on. And so it's a different medical world. And unfortunately, more and more people are being labeled with diagnoses which um, lead to more treatment and as you said, more does not necessarily mean healthier and it's certainly not cost effective and so what what I've seen is really a consumer push for uh, safer, more effective alternatives to many of our conventional treatments and I've seen that in my own practice and in the work that I do nationally, and so we're, you know, I sort of call it going back to the future. We're really looking at many old-time remedies, things that People that have worked in natural medicine for many years have recognized are safe and effective. We're we're starting to look at those in more conventional circles.
0: Well, well, now that antibiotics are are discouraged as a first line therapy for for several upper respiratory infections and ear infections, mm-hmm. often. Um, what let's start with ear infections. What what would be some of the things that might step in in place of that? I know a lot of. Conventional doctors will still give antibiotics despite the research, just because yes. the patient is asking for it and yes. it's comforting. So, yeah. what what could what could one use in in replace of an ear infection? I mean, whether in it's place it's... of a of an antibiotic for ear infection.
1: Yeah, and whether it's ear infections or sinus infections, you know, things that historically we've said, all right, well, there probably are some uh, minority of cases that do that are bacterial, or to the best of our ability, we can guess that they're bacterial. Um, But those conditions are decreasing, and we're seeing an increase in antibiotic resistance and adverse effects. And so we say, all right, as a practitioner, I need some other tools. And oftentimes, you know, if you build up, comes back to trust and relationship. If I've been working with a family for a long time or they know me, they're going to trust me when I say, look, this child's body doesn't need anything else. They need rest. They need hydration. They need to breastfeed. They need to whatever it might be but this idea that we have to treat it, per se, whether that's something like fever or infections, allowing the body naturally to do its thing. However, many practitioners and families are uncomfortable, and there are times, you know, we certainly don't want kids to suffer, and we can sort of accelerate healing or assist with it. So in my practice, I'll look at a combination of herbal and homeopathic remedies. Specifically for ears, we use a lot of Um, oils, garlic, mulling oil, you know, as an example, we can teach people how to make garlic oil, you know, crush some garlic and olive oil and use it, or we can talk about certain over-the-counter brands that we recommend. Um, that's one simple thing. Um, And
0: you cite a study that shows equal effectiveness to antibiotics. Yeah, there's
1: an Israeli study that, uh, compared head-to-head, uh, topical, uh, naturopathic drops, or their, their herbal blend drops with, um... St. John's wort and echinacea, uh, or St. John's and um, uh, garlic and mullein, uh, compared to antibiotic use, and they found that, on average, the kids had quicker pain response, which makes sense, and uh, anti-inflammatory response with the drops. Um, and so that's just that's one evidence-based example of something we can do. And then there are, of course, always specific individual homeopathic remedies we might recommend. If I have a child who's having recurrent Ear infections, I will recommend that they meet with a chiropractor, an osteopath, craniosacral therapist, somebody to address the anatomical needs. So, those are some of the other things we can do.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Dr. Lawrence Rosen, the author of Treatment Alternatives for Children. Dr. Rosen, a lot of uh, alternative practitioners have a very different view of fever, and and fever is something that is often very distressing to a a parent when their child is suffering from one. But I would say that's a, a major philosophical split between conventional and alternative medicine on, on whether, uh, and, and how to address a fever. So, can you tell us what your personal thoughts, since you're straddling both worlds, um, mm-hmm. around around fevers and whether they should be suppressed and
1: sure or sure encouraged? It's, yeah, it's, I'm I'm glad you brought that up, and that comes up in practice every single day, several times a day, and it's. Of the calls I get uh off hours and weekends, that's like ninety percent <laughs> of the calls and there is this what I've written about and call fever phobia um that many of us have been raised to be afraid of fever and and still to this day, even with a lot of education, many parents are worried that the fever itself is damaging to the body or the brain when in fact, I agree with many of my colleagues in um more natural uh um, field, that fever is the body's way of dealing with infection or inflammation. It's often a healthy sign. I try to reframe it that way. And like I said, we do a lot of education work, but I, don't, I do not believe in suppressing symptoms, fever being one of them. Um, that being said, with the fears that parents have, we can usually, by talking about them, help them to feel more comfortable that 104 fever isn't going to cause brain damage per se. That's a common fear. And to talk about things like water or hydrotherapy, you know, using water to to, to hydrate, to sponge down. Um, the idea that you can help your child feel more comfortable while allowing their body to naturally process whatever infection or inflammation there is. And I know in homeopathic circles, you know, the last thing we talk about doing is suppressing because then you're just shoving things under and allowing things to express later that can be a problem. You mentioned, though, that, of course, we don't want our kids to, to suffer and be uncomfortable, and a lot of parents worry, so there are some alternatives I've learned, um, mostly from my friends in, in uh, naturopathy, about you know more natural ways to help kids feel comfortable when they're hot. Uh, one of my favorites is the cold or frozen sock remedy, where you take a pair of socks and soak them in water, put them in the freezer for about half an hour and then put them on the children. And it seems, when I first heard about it, I thought, ooh, I don't know that they're going to like that. But it's pretty amazing how it, it works and helps them feel much better pretty quickly.
0: Well, it's interesting. I know I don't think there have been human studies done on this yet, but I, I know there are some animal studies on on if you suppress a fever, it actually can lengthen the course of illness. And that would make sense if, if fever is actually helping you produce more, white blood cells faster and increasing your metabolism.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I agree with you. And I think the, the theory would be that fever is really a downstream effect of the chemical cascade that the body's trying to do to to deal with the infection. Um, you know, there are outliers, you know, very long stretches of fever, other things. And we do, we, you know, we say to our families, look, if, if your child's hydrated and well and, and okay, and it's, if it's been more than three days, definitely check in with us and see if you need to come in. But for the most part, a lot of it's really about education. I think, you know, and with the book, what we found is a lot of families say, "Oh, that's great. I'm glad to have other things I can do." I really was uncomfortable with giving acetaminophen every four hours, you know, and so it's nice to have some options
0: and and Dr. Rosen, what would you do for or what are some of the common interventions you do for flu prevention and and treatment in your practice?
1: Um, that's something that really you know we see well, i 'm in the northeast and uh, we tend to see our season somewhere in december January. This seems like every year somebody thinks it 's the worst season ever when you know typically we we find that uh in our patients we do a lot of preventive care before flu season in, in terms of immune health, so in terms of prevention, I talk a lot about um getting kids on probiotics uh you know using those good live cultures and talking about you know that it that they should be refrigerated or kept in a cool place and the types and strains. But I do think there's some good data about probiotics and prevention of upper respiratory viral infections uh, and, and lower tract in some cases, including flu. Uh, the use of omega-3s, we put a lot of our kids, uh, those that can tolerate on fish oils. Um, and from, so from preventive aspect, uh, the other thing I would add is vitamin D. Uh, Many of the kids here, especially in the Northeastern, the winter are vitamin D deficient or at least insufficient. And so if through sunlight and diet they can't manufacture adequate D, we do supplement them with a good form of D3.
0: That's definitely true here in Portland as well. Uh, Yeah,
1: I would think so, anywhere in the northern part of the country. So I don't know if that comes up there as well. I would imagine it would.
0: And do you have a, a, a specific dosage that you look for or target you look for with vitamin D?
1: I do. That's a tricky thing, and I think what, you know if you're doing this for a while, you get a sort of a sense of of what kids need. But in general, so the the Institute of Medicine recommendations, I think, are pretty low. They recommend that, that babies and even young children, even through adolescence, are on only four to six hundred units of D3 per day. Um, perhaps for a, you know a newborn, that might be sufficient. We actually um, suggest to our uh, moms when they're breastfeeding that they supplement with four thousand to six thousand units of d3 per day so that the mom and the baby are getting enough um, with kids under three somewhere around four or five hundred units a day is probably reasonable from three to six it's probably more like a thousand units and six above one to two thousand units and a lot of our adolescents are on anywhere from two to five thousand units a day we do measure levels as well um, d is a, a fat soluble vitamin so theoretically you can become toxic it's hard. I mean, when your levels, we try to target levels somewhere between forty and a hundred in blood test nanograms per per deciliter. And um, it's almost unheard of that we have kids that are in the the higher ranges unless they're they're getting from somewhere that we didn't recognize. So um, we try to follow those levels as well.
0: And does elderberry play any role in your in your treatment for the flu in your practice?
1: Yes. When you talk about treatment, so when we have um, People are developing symptoms, fevers, myalgias, you know, aches and pains, upper respiratory symptoms. I start them on a, an extract of elderberry syrup two to three times a day right away. Um, the, you know, we use um, brands that are just elderberry extracts or some blends, um, but I, I absolutely do that. You know, so if the adult dose is, let's say, a teaspoon, I'll just extrapolate. So kids from, like, 6 to 12, I'll use a half. Sometimes under that I'll use a quarter of a teaspoon that we don't really know the dose per se but i i've been very impressed by anecdotally by the success we've had but also with the lab data both in vivo and in vitro that it's it's helpful i also use homeopathic Oscillococcinum as a flu remedy early on in the treatment so those two things in particular
0: well and elderberry has that benefit of being one of the few herbs that is incredibly delicious
1: yes yeah and more and more, I don't know if you find there, but I've found families who are able to find elderberries and make their own.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh,
1: yeah, which they take great pride in, and the kids can kids love to make recipes. So it's always a fun thing, and they're more likely to, I find, eat or drink it when they're involved in the process. So that's a cool thing.
0: If you just tuned in, we're talking today with Dr. Lawrence Rosen about his book, Treatment Alternatives for Children. If you have a question for Dr. Rosen, the number here at the studio is 503-231-8187. So uh, let's move on to some digestive ailments. Uh, obviously, colic is one that a lot of parents uh, have to manage. What do we know about colic and and ways to treat it that are uh, that are different than the conventional method?
1: Well, colic is something that um, we see in uh, newborns uh, a fair amount of the time. I would say probably somewhere around five percent of the time. And uh, the true definition, which goes back over 50 years, is that these are babies that are really beyond, they're excessively irritable. Uh, Usually they start at three weeks of age or later, um, at least three hours a day, uh, three times a week. And so I find many babies that are truly colicky. It's every single night, somewhere in the evening hours. They're crying nonstop for five, six hours, despite everything the parents are trying to do. And you can imagine, I mean, it's so incredibly stressful. We're not sure today exactly what causes it, although some of the more recent studies suggest there, there's some n- neuro-GI component that in the gut, um, you know, the greatest seat of our immune and, and neurologic system, that there are receptors there perhaps that are, haven't adjusted completely, that, that some babies need an extra 12 to 14 weeks after they're born to adjust to life outside the uterus. And so if you think about it, all the sights and sounds and stimuli, you know, they, they get overwhelmed. Um, so colic is one of those interesting things where there are so many different things to do, yet often in conventional pediatric practices parents are said are told, well, there's really nothing you can do, just go and wait it out, it'll take about 12 weeks and then everything will be better, when the truth is um, there are a whole host of, of things to do. I usually start with looking at if, uh, at the baby's diet. And so if mom is breastfeeding, we look at what she's eating and look at foods that might be irritating. Most people think those are limited to cruciferous vegetables, cauliflower, broccoli, or, or tomatoes in some cases. But actually I find dairy, cow's milk dairy, is one of the most offending foods for babies that are irritable. So it could be eliminating cow's milk from the mom's diet. Uh, it could be soy in some cases. It may be gluten and others. There are just a number of foods we do, rotation elimination diets with the mom. If the baby's being formula-fed, we usually take them off a cow's milk formula and look at alternatives. Uh, infant massage is an incredibly helpful strategy. Uh, parents can be taught uh, how to do simple infant massage. And we usually, in our, in our office, we have a nurse, my nurse Karen, who teaches it uh, to parents, and she incorporates aromatherapy. Uh, or oils in the massage uh, to help calm the babies and it's a great bonding for the parents so they really feel hands-on. Some families go to their chiropractors or osteopaths uh, or do craniosacral therapy. There may have been some issue with birth trauma that can be addressed. Um, And then there are some herbal approaches uh, ranging from simple uh, chamomile, chamomile tea. Uh, Babies can uh, sip. Uh, There's some studies showing that even up to five ounces at a feeding. We generally only use an ounce uh, for newborns, up to three times a day. We feel that amount of fluid is safe. But I tell parents, we brew a regular chamomile tea, nothing else in it, just really strong. Let, the, let the, the flour or the tea bag sit in there for a good five minutes, and the baby can sip it, or you can use your finger and give some drops. And there are some blends of things like gripe water and others that combine a number of herbs, including chamomile, fennel, uh, some nutritionals like ginger that can be very effective. And those are just some of the things we can do.
0: Uh, we have a call off the air that was interested in knowing where to start with uh, with a child that may be diagnosed with ADD, with a difficulty focusing.
1: Yeah, that's something in, in my consultations. I'm often, uh, families or I'm referred to kids who uh, have been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder uh, and the parents really don't want to turn to medications. Um, so the first thing i do is a really comprehensive evaluation i find a lot of kids who are diagnosed with adhd and it's and i do believe it's a real condition i know there are people out there who are skeptical um, i think in many cases it's it's over diagnosed or, or, or misdiagnosed there are many things um... biomedically or biologically or spiritually socially emotionally that can lead to distractibility impulsivity the inability to pay attention and it's not necessarily ADHD in the classic sense. So we look at the child's whole life. How are they interacting in school? How are they interacting at home? Uh, how are they in the context of their family? Uh, what's the family history like? What's their diet like? Um, you know, if they're not eating a particularly healthful diet, uh, looking at removing those foods that can be um, problematic, that are artificially colored, flavored, sugared, etc. Um, looking at specific foods, whether they're particularly sensitive. And then if we go and we clean all that up and we find, yeah, they are really, you know, predominantly distractible and inattentive and truly have ADHD, um, you know, there are a variety of non drug therapies that have been shown in some research studies to be helpful. One interesting one is neurofeedback, which is a form of biofeedback. Kids uh, are connected through a um, a monitoring system, they can measure EEG waves or brain waves through a computer system and analyze them um, through a brain mapping technique. And then it's fed through a computer game or a video game. And over sessions, kids will meet for 30 to 60 minutes, one, two times a week for, you know, several months in a row to learn how to essentially learn how to pay attention by playing the video games with their brain. Uh, it sounds kind of science fiction-y, but there's some good data behind it, uh, and there are many reputable practitioners that are learning how to do this. Um, I find that it helps with attention, but also with self-regulation, mood regulation. Um, I also recommend therapies like mind-body therapies, like yoga, which can incorporate physical movement with mindfulness, and that those can be skills that kids can learn, especially those that are tweens or teens, to help them um, learn the skills to focus and attend more effectively no matter what else they're doing. So those are just a few strategies.
0: Yeah, thanks for the answer on that. Uh, so w- you also have a section in, in treatment alternatives for children um, about type 1 diabetes and environmental factors. I thought well, that was a very interesting section. Could you, could yeah. you touch on that briefly?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the hats I wear is I, I help... Um, uh, Coordinate the research for the Deirdre Imus Environmental Health Center uh, at a local university medical center, Hackensack, near me. Uh, and our mission is really to identify uh, and help control environmental factors in, in, in children's health. And diabetes is a really interesting case because until recently, um, few kids were diagnosed with diabetes, uh, many more type 1, which is what we have always thought of as just autoimmune childhood onset diabetes and it was thought that to be heavily genetic um, but we've also we discovered a few things about blood sugar control one is that more and more kids are being diagnosed with type 2 which used to be adult onset or obesity related um, related to obesity and metabolic syndrome in kids and so more of those kids and we're seeing a lot of mixed type these are kids with insulin resistant and autoimmune diabetes together And it's clear that there are a whole host of toxins and environmental contaminants that are creating, um, uh, let's put it this way, they're creating epigenetic effects. So that if you're born with a predisposition to having insulin resistance or autoimmune disorders, such as diabetes, some environmental factor can push you over the edge. It can be something like a virus or a pesticide or a plasticizer. So... We're starting to do research to look at what these factors might be, and the hope is to prevent many of these cases of autoimmune disease like diabetes in the future by eliminating environmental contaminants or trying to modulate the response. So one thought is probiotics. If we have children on probiotics from an early age and they're faced with environmental contaminants uh, or certain infections, might that help them detox or process in a certain way that protects them and helps modulate their immune system response. It's really exciting stuff, and I hope over the next few years we'll see more along those lines.
0: Well, when it comes to looking at research, it is exciting that a lot more research is being done on alternative medicine therapies, but how do you address patients who are concerned about interactions between some of these interventions and their pharmaceutical medications when there isn't a ton of, of research to point to 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 make people feel more comfortable who are worried.
1: Yeah, I think particularly in uh, in, bio, in sort of the biomedical therapy area where we're looking at interactions between herbs or between herbs and pharmaceutical uh, prescriptions, um, it's not as much of an issue in children as it is in adults, but it's becoming more of an issue. And it's one of the interests uh, of the American Academy of Pediatrics section is to advocate for more research. You know, part of the problem is... Um, it's difficult to do research. One of my colleagues, Sunita Vora, who's up in uh, in Alberta in Canada, um, talks a lot about how complicated it is to study herbs uh, versus uh, pharmaceuticals which have you know, may have one, you know have one active ingredient. Um, so the first thing we have to do is support the research in these areas financially and in terms of strategies and helping people who do this work to understand to study a plant is very complicated. Uh, and the other thing is to say, there actually is a fair amount of published research. You just you know when I did the book, I had to know where to look um, and I tried to provide some data and evidence for many of the herbs in terms of interactions, I do think we have to be cautious and recognize that just because something's natural doesn't mean it's safe, uh, and that especially if you're having surgery uh, or you have a, a complex chronic health disease um, that you do have to check in and so I really advocate for patients to talk to their their doctors and their practitioners about everything they're using. Uh, and so hopefully we can develop a, a non-judgmental, open-minded dialogue with practitioners and patients to, to discover this and to say, you know, okay, well, it's great that you're taking fish oils, and in general that's good, but if you're having surgery, you know, in a couple of weeks, it's something we really need to look at in terms of your bleeding time. You know, just to have that open dialogue and not be judgmental. So, I'm hoping that we can make improvements in those areas.
0: well, Dr. Rosen, it was great having you on Health Watch today. Do you have a website you could point our listeners to if they want to learn more about treatment alternatives for children?
1: Yes, thanks for pointing that out the The best website to turn to is lawrence m d dot com That's my name lawrence rosen r o s e n m d dot com
0: Great well, thank you for being on Health Watch today, Dr. Rosen
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We're talking today with Dr. Lawrence Rosen, the author of Treatment Alternatives for Children. If you missed part of today's program or want to hear other programs on HealthWatch, you can do so at kboo.fm and search for HealthWatch or go to the iTunes podcast store and search also for HealthWatch there. And uh, next week, we'll be having Ann Fletcher, the author of Inside Rehab, talking about the science behind addiction therapies. How supported are the addiction centers that we go to for various problems by science and, and, and in what ways could they be better? Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.